0: This episode is brought to you by Lightpoint, of which I'm the principal engineer. Lightpoint provides the collision reconstruction community with data and education to facilitate and elevate analyses. Our most popular product is our exemplar vehicle point clouds. If you've ever needed to track down an exemplar, you know it takes hours of searching for the perfect model, awkward conversations with dealers, and usually some cash to grease the wheels. Then back at the office, it takes a couple more hours to stitch and clean the data, and that eats up manpower and adds a lot to the bottom line of your invoice. Save yourself the headache so you can spend more time on what really matters, the analysis. Lightpoint has already measured most vehicles with a top of the line scanner, like his RTC360, so no one in the community has to do it again. The exemplar point cloud is delivered in PTS format, includes the interior, and is fully cleaned and ready to drop into your favorite programs, such as CloudCompare, 3DS Max, Rhino, Virtual Crash, PC Crash, among others. Head over to lightpointdata.com slash datadriven to check out the database and receive 15% off your first order. That's lightpointdata.com data driven All right, my guest today is Rick Ruth. Rick is president of Ruth Consulting, which specializes in passenger vehicle event data recorders, EDRs, of which we'll be talking a lot about today, and restraint systems performance. He has published over 20 EDR-related papers and assists civil attorneys and prosecutors in Fry and Daubert hearings to facilitate admission of EDR data in court. He teaches EDR imaging and data analysis to law enforcement and private reconstructionists via SAE and IPTM and is a regular speaker at national and regional conferences. Rick is actively involved in EDR committees for SAE, ISO and ASTM. Prior to consulting, Rick put 33 years under his belt as an engineer for Ford Motor Company and since 2008, managed the engineers who perform field investigations of safety system performance in real-world crashes, including EDR imaging and analysis, and championed the release of Ford EDR data to the Bosch crash data retrieval system. He was a member of Ford's EDR Policy Committee, was Ford's representative to the SAE EDR Standards Committee, and helped shape Ford and Auto Alliance responses to the NHTSA on Part 563 EDR legislation. Mr. Ruth has a BS in electrical engineering from Michigan Technological University, an MBA from the University of Michigan, and is also a registered professional engineer. So that should give you an idea that Rick is the man to talk about this stuff with. Uh, So thanks so much for making the time to be here today.
1: Happy to be here, Lou. Anything we can do for help, help our fellow reconstructionists out. uh, You're well known for it as well. So let's get on with it.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You have a reputation for being available, and I think everybody really appreciates that, uh, especially with your unique background, your unique perspective. Um, And part of that was uh, your background at Ford. So I saw that you started there in 1973. I don't want to rub it or anything, but this is uh, eight years before I was born. Uh, And then you were there to 2006. Um, So when did EDRs even appear on the radar, and what did that evolution look like while you were at Ford?
1: Sure, well, if we really go back to the beginning, I was hired to do the airbag firing system in 1973. Uh, The technology wasn't ready yet. Uh, I would uh, say, have a hard time falling asleep and wake up in the middle of the night fearing that people were gonna die because my system wasn't going to work. Uh, there were mechanical systems and, and the old mechanical systems, there was contact bounce and other things that kept things from working properly. Uh, but when the EDRs came in was uh, when we went to electronic sensing systems, So GM started at 94 and Ford said to you, not so sure about this, let's give it a few years. So we gave it till 97. And then we began with electronic sensing and began to put in you know, very uh, small data recorders for just the acceleration data that was used to make the decision to fire the airbags. Now we were a little bit jealous of GM because they put speed data into theirs and they covered a longer time period. But we had an attorney, a vice president of privacy, and he said, if you don't need it to exactly understand how your system worked, you can't record it. We don't want to violate people's privacy. Well, the great news was we downsized that vice president in 2002. And then when the cat's away, the mice will play. So you know, we Ford engineers said, well, what should we do? And say, well, you don't have to reinvent everything. What's GM doing? Okay. All right. Let's, let's, let, let's do something like that, but we'll have to change it just a little. They record throttle angle. Like nobody wants to record throttle. We want to know what the driver's doing. We'll record accelerator pedal position. So, so anyway, we made the Ford EDRs and, and, uh, say it came along, but, uh, we had a little bit of a slower start than our friends at General Motors did.
0: Yeah. And so when was that first EDR, that most simplistic EDR that was capturing acceleration profiles?
1: For Ford, 1997, for GM, 1994.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think I had a 1994 Pontiac Grand Am, and I'm pretty sure that had an event data recorder on it. Um, Fortunately, I never tested that out, even though I was 16. I I, I, I somehow avoided crashing that vehicle. Uh, So now we're at a spot where 99% of the vehicles rolling off the assembly line have an EDR. Is that right?
1: Yes. So and the great news is is that the, we we actually have to thank the United States government for that that because they made a regulation you now while technically that regulation didn't require vehicles to have an EDR for all practical purposes the government was sending a message of you really ought to have one of these you know and we we know all of you are recording something if you record anything you got to record a little bit more make it a really good you know and the because we have that foundation that was laid in the United States 10 years ago, uh, that, that we have you know, event data recorders in you know, the vast majority of our vehicles, certainly all, almost all the new ones. Uh, and because we've been putting it in all the new ones for over 10 years, you know, the, the number of old ones and new ones, the percentage that we have you know, is in the, at least the middle 60s, uh, approaching 70% of all vehicles on the road in the United States that have an EDR. Wow, that's, yeah,
0: that's incredible. So if you, it's something to the effect of, I mean, if you do the math there, you're gonna have like 80 to 90% of crashes. At least one of the vehicles is probably, statistically speaking, going to have some sort of EDR on there. And it's been a long time since I've taken engineering stats. So that might not be right, but that sounds right. And, you know, early on, I think you probably remember, and I, I, I kind of started on the scene in the early 2000s, there were certain reconstructionists who said, listen, this is where I'm drawing the line. There's no way I can keep up with all this. I'll hire somebody to do the EDR stuff. I'll hire somebody to interpret it. And that just kind of proved to be a methodology that's, that's not really feasible. You have to at least have a solid foundation, it seems, in EDR now if you want to be a relevant reconstructionist. Uh, what, how do you think of that? What kind of level of knowledge is required to be a reconstructionist nowadays on the, uh, nowadays on the EDR front?
1: Sure. I mean, everybody doesn't have to be an expert. But the way that I think of it is if you if you show me all the scene evidence, I can solve about 80% of the crashes uh, with pretty good accuracy. If you give me the EDR data, I can solve about 80% of the crashes with pretty good accuracy. But if you want to get them all right, you know, you got to you got to fit that physical evidence and the EDR together. And so that's that's why the reconstructionists are typically not farming out the fundamental EDR analysis that everybody needs to, to do it. Now, occasionally you come up with a really weird one, a really unusual one. And that's what I do all day, every day is field the calls from the people that have weird ones and say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at EDRs, but I just can't figure this one out. You know, it's like, it's driving me crazy. Yeah. You know, can you help me? And I'll, I'll go through and look at it. And they'll say like, you know, well, I, I think your car hit the curb here. And then the wheels bounced up and the wheels spun when it got in the air. And and so you have a crazy, stupid speed reading and and it's confusing you, you know, but if we look at everything else, you know, and figure out you know, where was the EDR when it wrote down each number in it, then we can make sense out of it all. So the secret is is fitting the two together. And so while it, it helps to have a, a specialist like me available for the weird ones, you know, the typical reconstructionist you know, basically has to be able to look at a, a report and get the fundamentals out of it and say do the fundamentals match my uh, my scene evidence does it match the rest of my traditional reconstruction my momentum my crush uh, my time distance for the things that lay out there so so i think everybody's got to be this good at it you know and, and a few of us have to be you know that good at it yeah
0: and i always i I always appreciate the fact that you're available for, for things like that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I've had several cases where uh, the EDR data all makes sense, except for polarity seems to be reversed or something like that. And before I'm comfortable moving to deposition or trial, I just want to reach out to somebody who has their finger on the pulse of a lot of these anomalies and is continually in touch with the community. So, like you said, we need people like that in the industry and I'm, I'm glad you're there and I appreciate your, your willingness to, to share.
1: And just a quick note, Lou, that that, uh, actually the United States government uh, could be putting me out of business because of their wonderful crash investigation sampling system, which now has over 14,000 crashes in it, of which 8,000 have EDRs. If you now have something like an anomaly of uh, polarity, you can go in and you say, well, I have a 2014 Nissan Altima with this polarity. Let's go look at the other 2014 Nissan Altimas. And you say, Oh, well, in this one, the airbags deployed, but it said, I got hit from behind. You say, oh, I think, I think we have a polarity problem. Yeah. So, uh, so you don't, so you, uh, you don't have to call me all the time. Actually, you can look in the CISs database and figure out a lot of that stuff, which is very helpful for our community.
0: Yeah, it really is. That's huge. And there's a link to that on your website, ruthconsulting.com. And you want, you go under vehicle exterior. CDR maybe? Where does it go from there? And then you can actually download the CDRx file from any case.
1: Yes. So you, you were describing the chain. So uh, as you say, once you get into the, the event, uh, it's click on vehicle exterior, and then there's an EDR, and then you have to click the expand button from EDR, and then it has summary, uh, and then like, you know, event record one, event record two, you click on the summary, and that's where the link to the CDRx file is which is because they're small files, very easily downloadable. Yeah, and you just
0: have to figure out, like you could be tricked into thinking that file isn't there. So they kind of buried it on us, but that's a, that's a great point. That, that's available and it's, it's huge for looking at, you know and then looking at similar damages that you might be seeing in a case and now you mm-hmm. actually have a documented Delta V or acceleration profile from that. Uh, that's, that's awesome. And I rumor has it, Rick, they're going to start doing motorcycle crashes soon too. So I'm excited about that.
1: Well, that's that's fabulous. Because uh, I was going to say that because they not only have the EDR report, they have the scene diagram, and they have photographs of the scene. Unfortunately, not with cars at rest in them, because uh, they, they get there three days later. But the uh, but then they do have photographs of both vehicles taken, you know, in the storage lot, or say, and in some cases there are three, four, five, six vehicles in some of them. But they they have a lot of photographs. So when you can have a damage photograph, a scene diagram, and an EDR report, you should be able to figure out what happened in that one and to see if it's similar to your crash. And that's what we're all looking for is something similar to our crash that that we can say, OK, here's, here's how the EDR behaved in this one. Uh, so that's how it should have behaved in mine and say, figure it out.
0: Yeah, that's huge. They do a really good job over there. So mm-hmm. we touched on a little bit already, but how's the data evolved since you started? So at the beginning it's it's literally just capturing from what I can understand the acceleration profile of the crash and then you could integrate that and get the delta V. And now we got like, you know, GM's uh, advanced safety mm-hmm. control module. Uh, so what's what's that uh, evolution looked like as far as like where you started and and where we're at today?
1: Well, you you, uh, you got the start perfectly right. Uh, Ford happened to record acceleration data. GM recorded delta v once every ten milliseconds. So Ford ran out of memory before the crash was over. Uh, so so uh, great, had yeah. great great detail for the beginning of the crash where the airbag deployed, which is what Ford cared about. Uh, whereas General Motors took the longer view of saying, "No, oh, I want to see what the whole crash looked like." and I'll accept a little bit less detail right around where the airbag deployed, uh, but that was the beginning for both both companies. Was just you know what is uh, what went into the inputs of setting the airbag system off. I think the the really the biggest uh, evolution along the way was when NHTSA got involved planning for the regulation in 2006. Is they they published their intent was to change the intent of the recorder from being f- for the manufacturer knowing if their safety system worked correctly to being used for effective crash reconstruction. And you know that, that's the key thing is who, who's the customer for this is we change the customer from the auto company to the reconstructionist. So, so, so we should all be thankful. They're doing it for us. It's a, they're doing it for us now. Uh, so that was their intent. And that's when we be, you know, began to see the speed data being added in. And then i was really uh, proud of chrysler they put in the stability control system data up front and that wasn't regulated or, re- or required in any way and similarly when i was in ford one of my last dying acts uh, before i uh, i retired was we had the big meeting where we said you know every everybody's got electronic modules everybody would like to store data but we really should think about putting this all in one place all together and making one edr that can serve many masters uh, in terms of knowing that the systems perform properly. So you had people out there that, uh, that ran the, you know, the anti-lock brake system and you know, others that worked on the tire pressure monitoring system and others that uh, were worried about, you know, engine fault codes and say, well, what, what if we could take all that and put it into one? So uh, I was part of those meetings that created the 2009 Ford system eventually. Uh, and, and it was a pretty good all-in-one recorder for 2009, uh, and it was in fact far ahead of what the government was asking for. And then, of course, the government regulation took effect, and there was a minimum floor that was set, you know, for uh, all pe- for all manufacturers. But I think what you really noticed was that there was a difference in in uh, the spirit of the manufacturers. So, so GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, uh, all took the the tack of I'm going to share as much data, record as much data as I can, and share as much data as I can. Whereas some of the other manufacturers, some of them had European influence or Asian influence that that said, "No, owner privacy is important. We're not we're not going to record things that you know aren't absolutely necessary." And so you saw the Mazdas and the Mercedes that that did the bare minimum that was required by regulation and uh, did not say go, go beyond that to providing extra helpful data to we crash reconstruction. So they did what they had to do, but but uh, didn't go beyond that. So I think what you see is the, the big four, you know, GM Ford, Chrysler, Toyota in the United States anyway, have all taken the, the attitude that more data is good. And so uh, the, along the way, you've seen some called uh, major points where the amount of data has gone up. So certainly, every generation of GM has included more data. And their most recent one, the SDM50 and the 2021 Corvette, is incredible in terms of what it has. And GM has added that advanced safety control module and the front camera module. So GM is clearly now. Uh, they started as the leaders. They got behind for a little while, behind Ford and Chrysler. And now they're they're way back out front again, in terms of the amount of data that's being provided. So, so if we say what has the the history been, it's just been more and more data every year. You know, not necessarily you know a tiny increment every year, but you know a major leap forward every three, four, five years, uh, by different manufacturers. And then if you take the aggregate of it all, it's been a little bit more every year for for us, the reconstructionists. But we get it in lumps uh, when we finally get it.
0: Yeah, that uh, ASCM. I I think you and I were both at IPTM last year, 2022. And I sat through uh, Don Floyd's presentation, which was awesome. And he seems to be, you know, Don Floyd, for those that don't know, at GM. The way I understand Don's role is he's heading up their, their EDR efforts and um, pushing the boundaries. Uh, in, in, like you said, GM's kind of always been doing that and is taking the lead again. And hopefully we get some other people that say, hey, that looks nice. It'd be good to have that info.
1: Yeah, Don is a global, he's now, he used to be more like the United States EDR guy and he's now the global uh, EDR guy for General Motors. So he's also sucked in deeply into the China issues and European issues. Uh, and United Nations uh, issues, and it, it's like herding cats for poor Don.
0: Yeah, we'll get into what's going on in the world market um, in a little bit. Hopefully, that doesn't pull them away too far from continuing to push push the envelope and get more data. Like, uh, you know, as greedy reconstructionists, we want as much data as we can get. So the best tool for us, obviously, right now is the Bosch, the CanPlus, and then the CDR900. We, we need them both, right, to do, to do our job at this point, it seems.
1: Absolutely, there are still many vehicles that you can only use the CAN-plus on, some that you can use either uh, interface on, and then uh, a small but growing number where you must use the CDR-900. So you absolutely have to have both tools in your bag. Yeah. And that's, that's where we're at. And how, how have you
0: been making out with the, the CDR 900? I know just uh, like at random downloads, everybody kind of gripes about communication issues, but I feel, I feel like you've probably solved that issue for yourself already.
1: You'd like to think so, but <laughs> I have trouble too. <laughs>
0: okay. It's good to know we're not alone. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I saw Kent Boots recently posted up on LinkedIn and he said, Hey, uh, make sure the uh, module goes beep before you plug it into the USB port on your laptop. And I was like, all right, maybe that's all it was. Maybe it was
1: just something as simple as waiting for the beep. I think it's wait for the beep before you try to communicate with you. Actually, when you plug it in, it gets the five volts and then it needs about 10 seconds to give you the beep that it it has five volts. Now it's still not ready to do its whole job. You need the 12 volts plugged in to do the whole job. But I think you'll get the beep even when you just plug in the USB.
0: Yeah, the way that he was mentioning it for, like, let's say a normal DLC download is plug into the OBD2 port. You'll get the power, wait for the beep, and then apply the USB cable at that point. So ho- hopefully that does
1: it. Uh, I've gone ahead and put the USB in first, and it's been working for me lately. But yeah. in, the, in the early days, I do remember spending, uh say, three, three days at eight hours a day with the Bosch helpline. And uh, after about 24 hours of sitting on the end, they said, by the way, is your VCI manager still open? I said, Yeah. He said, like, oh, well, it won't work if you do that.
0: It was as simple
1: as that. Like it's like, could we have said that 24 hours ago? Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and they're going through some big changes. You and I were talking about before we were recording. They've historically, what well, the R and D, uh, Bill Rose, they've been in Santa Barbara, and now they're having they're they're spreading. They have uh, global efforts now. They're spreading out their R and D center and they're having problems, uh, with supplies and getting components. You know, you try to go buy a can plus unit right now. I don't think you can. Um, so, uh, w- what's going on uh, with Bosch as of recently?
1: Well, I think you're seeing a transition from Bosch being focused on meeting the United States regulation and the, the, the needs of the US, of the manufacturers to meet the U S law, uh, to now saying, wait a minute, we've got China With an EDR, we've got the European Union, you know, that has a regulation that is now adopting the United Nations standard. So clearly, this is going to be a global, you know, operation, and so we we shouldn't be focused only on the U.S. So, and and we know for cost reasons that many people are saying that that India is a lower cost source of engineers, uh, especially software engineers. And so I, so while I hadn't heard an announcement of it. But by speaking with people in the industry, I've become aware that they they have basically downsized the United States staff, except for the program manager Bill Rose, uh, and they've gone and and sent most of the development and the testing uh, to India, and of course I'm sure they're having to staff up in India. But any time that you lose some experienced talent, as they have with their United States people, and you you're trying to gear up, you know, new say. People to become familiar with the system over in India. Uh, there's a learning curve that's going to be in there, and so I, I think we're in for a uh, call it a, a rough year or two until the uh, until the Indian operation is fully trained and and fully staffed. Now, those are just my thoughts. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I'm not speaking anything from Bosch internal. I haven't heard any complaints from uh, Bill Rose. You know, but uh, I, I, I suspect that he's uh he's probably pulling his hair out a little bit uh, nowadays from, uh, from my own, uh, experience with, uh, trying to, uh, you know, use, uh, the Indian culture to do things that they are not yet familiar with. You know, I think they're fine people, but I think you get take anybody and you give them a job that they've never had before and have to understand a, a, a compact, a complex global system. You know, I think there's going to be a learning curve involved there. And I, I think we're gonna see some bumps along the way from Bosch uh, until that staff has uh, has more time to learn uh, and implement EDRs They have so
0: much to deal with. I mean, they're they're taking feedback from us in the field, using the tool and saying, hey, we had this weird issue that we've never had before. Can you create a patch? To uh, interacting with the manufacturers, which of course you're intimately familiar with and implementing any changes they're making or integrating new new models, like the new Corvette, I mean, goodness gracious, that's, that's a lot to deal with. And then, like you said, you just put a new group of people together on it and it does sound challenging. So hopefully the growing pains, uh, don't affect things too much and they, they smooth on through it and then supplies, you know, like you were saying, can't go get any cable you want right now. So if I find out next week, I have to go download a a brand new Corvette and I'm expecting to go direct to module. The odds of me being able to buy that cable, who knows? Maybe maybe I can, maybe I can't. So to have relationships with other people in the community like you, you can ring them up and say, hey, do you have that? I'll, I'd love to rent it from you.
1: Yeah, I, I literally just sent a, a Subaru cable to a colleague last night uh, because they couldn't buy it. It was not for sale. Now, while cables don't have chips in them, what we do want to say in terms of the things like the interface modules is there still is, you know, a, a very serious global chip shortage. Going on. And that's affecting, you know, not only things like interface modules, but EDRs. Uh, the, the EDRs themselves, you know, GM, I'm sure would love to have their new SDM50 and many of their models, but can't get the chips. Uh, so the, the combination and it, it's not just airbag modules, you know, it's every electronics module in the vehicle, you know, anti lock brake system, en- engine controllers. Uh, the global chip shortage is having a, an incredible effect. You know on the on the overall industry in terms of the ability to to move things forward and get all the parts you need you know for the design so certainly bosch is just a is a small part of that we're seeing supply chain issues in general but i just highlight the chips in particular as being a a known ongoing issue but supply chain even even cables are hard to come by
0: yeah that makes it tough so so with the bosch system we can we can tackle the majority of the downloads but there are a couple ancillary systems that either you need to own or somebody in the community might need to own to, to interrogate a system. So what, what are the secondary systems nowadays?
1: Well, the, the biggest one is Kia and Hyundai. So they, they made their decision uh, when the EDR regulation came out that instead of using Bosch, that they would go to their dealer uh, diagnostic toolmaker, GIT Global Information Technologies, and say, well, you know, GIT. Already knows how to talk to all of my electronic modules. Why would I want to pay Bosch, who doesn't know my modules, how to to go learn how to read them when I can just tell GIT, my captive uh, diagnostic toolmaker, you know, thou shalt make this tool for me. You know, just as GM did the Vitronics back in two thousand. You know, and initially Vitronics said like, you know, like why would I ever want to do that? That doesn't sound profitable. Yeah. And GM <laughs> twisted their arm and said like, how many tech 2s do I buy from you every year? Yeah, so like, you, know, you, you will, you will make this tool for me. So I think GIT was placed in a similar situation where they were told they were going to make a tool. Uh, so the, it was an, unusual that Kia and Hyundai, while they are, say, tied together back in Korea, that in the United States, uh, I believe due to some, uh, say, little, little known antitrust issue that somehow they weren't allowed to talk to each other in the United States, that Kia and Hyundai headquarters are five miles apart from each other on the, out in Cal- out in Irvine on the, the five, the 40, 405, the, the five, the 405, one of those it's five, probably. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, you but even they're not put allowed the to the talk the to in each front other. It.
0: That's very impressive. That's a SoCal thing to put the, the, in front of the five, the, oh, you're, okay. you're clearly a cultured and well-traveled man.
1: Didn't know that, uh, but you know, technically. There's this wall between them, so you you buy this Kia tool, you know, or you buy a Hyundai tool. Anyway, they they ended up making two tools, whereas the interface module uh, functions identically. So the only difference is they put blue plastic on the Hyundai ones and red plastic on the Kia ones, and other than that, they are you know functionally identical. So we didn't really. So when I say we didn't need to buy both tools, they they made it so you had to buy both tools. Because you could only update the software, load and update the software for the one you bought the the tool for and had the license for. Uh, so I just went and bought both licenses and put both softwares on my laptop.
0: Yeah, that's smart. I'd like. Well, I think it's nine grand right now from the Crash Data Group to get both of those. The price that I don't know, and maybe you do, is how much is that annual upkeep on the GIT stuff?
1: It's a uh, six ninety five per brand per year currently. So. For the two of them 1290 which is pretty close to what bosch is for the the cdr system bosch is 1250 last i looked
0: yeah it's a hard pill to swallow when it's just doing kia and hyundai and bosch does everything it would be great if they go the path of subaru and eventually get over to bosch but i I don't think that's on the horizon
1: i don't think it's going to happen
0: okay uh so we talked a little bit about part 563 and how the federal government said hey if you are recording stuff this is how you have to do it at the bare minimum. Then the, last summer, they came out with this notice of uh, proposed rulemaking and they said, all right, you got five seconds now of pre-impact data at two hertz, two samples a second. We want you to do 20 seconds of pre-impact data at 10 hertz. And I, I, so that was the biggest part of the rulemaking that I saw. And apparently that I learned last night from you, that, that was shot down, huh?
1: Well, when I say it shot down, the manufacturers, they, they were all given 90 days to respond to it. And, you know, t- 201, they uniformly responded, you know, that's stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> you know? And the, by the way, your cost estimate of that it would cost 0.3 cents, you know, per module to do that was way off. Uh, because the uh, the government doesn't know how to do cost estimates very well. They don't understand that. They think it's just you know just making a little bigger memory chip. They don't understand all the processor overhead and the RAM memory that has to be buffered to feed that the little bit of double Eprom memory. Uh, but the, the government missed a huge opportunity. So so the the reason that they went after the recording time and frequency was that when the uh, FAST Act was uh, passed back in say 20, say 15, 16, 17, they, the government basically said, we don't think the the timing is right. Somebody should go study this and come up with what the right amount of time is. And so the way the government works is they led a contract of Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech went out and collected a group of statistics. Uh, and in the end, from what I can see, they after they collected all these statistics, uh, ignored them all and just said that should be 20 seconds at 10 times a second. And there there really wasn't a statistical rationale for it. Uh, and when I say that the government missed a huge opportunity, they they basically did what Congress told them to, go look at the time. Well, you know, the original regulation was formulated in 2006. In 2006, stability control was not yet, uh, say something that was required, that, that phased in as a requirement from 2009 to 2012, uh, so stability control system data is a big thing to us in the crash reconstruction world. So it was not really included in the original Part 563 regulation. You know, now if I was going to update Part 563, you know, and I was on the, the say the consulting committee, say like you know we we want that stability control data you know we want we want all of that stability control data the yaw rate the steering you know the lateral acceleration longitudinal deceleration on the 0 to 1 g scale uh, so we can see more precisely how fast the car is speeding up or slowing down you know and, and the, so that is something that's been around by uh, I should say been in cars since 2012 well then we came along with automatic emergency braking and that says has gradually been phasing in uh, there was a, a voluntary agreement. NHTSA decided to not regulate automatic emergency braking. They uh, they decided to make it a voluntary commitment by the industry. So at the the earliest time when they asked for commitments, it was for generally how about by 2022. And uh, so you see a lot of that. Now, not everybody has made the 2022, but but the, the industry is pretty well along. But again, along with automatic emergency braking came additional data. More specifically, is, is the car braking for you or not? Does it, is there a target in sight? How far away is that target? Uh, you know, at what point does it become a threat that needs to be responded to? And then did we warn the driver that there was a threat? And then did the driver respond to whether or not there was a threat? And if the driver didn't respond, did we overrule the driver and decide we were going to stop the car anyway? And how hard and how yeah, fast?
0: That sounds very valuable. Uh, that's something I would like to know.
1: I think we'd, we'd all like to know that. Now, General Motors has been kind enough to share that with us. Toyota has shared a little bit. Uh, you know, Honda has shared, are we, you know, are we warning? Are we breaking? Um, in their EDR, but, but basically there's a ton of data and we say, so that the government made this new NPRM, notice of proposed rulemaking. And, and what do they focus on? time. It's like there was so much more. Uh, And I think you and if you read the industry responses to the proposed regulation, you know, industry themselves were saying, like, you know, hey, you're you're missing the boat here. You know, Mm -hmm. you you don't get it. Time is not the problem. Say the problem is, you know, we've got all this extra data. And, you know, some of us are sharing it voluntarily. But, you know, if you want to advance the state of the art, you've got to go from voluntarily to if you have it, you got to write it down. You know, and that's uh, that's been the, the way that many of the other regulations around the world have been written. They're they're saying we recognize you may not have it in every vehicle. You know, so you don't you don't have to write down something that you don't have the sensor for. But if you have the sensor, you got to write it down in the EDR.
0: And it helps, not only obviously would it help us as reconstructionists, but if we're trying to evaluate how effective these autonomous systems are, then we need some way of judging them. And if we don't know if they break or not, then then how are we evaluating their uh, efficacy? It's tough.
1: Yeah, no, I think, say, we may be uh, skipping ahead just a, a little bit there that when you say, how would we know, we don't have a data collection system Set up just yet to collect. You know, of course, if the collision avoidance system is successful and avoids the crash, no harm, no foul. There's no, you know, no one goes to look at the data that says, "Good job, we avoided that crash." So the only data we typically get to see is the ones where it has failed. You know, and the car did actually crash. You know, then we go look at the data, and then we get to see, you know, when was the warning issued? When was the driver response? When was the automatic response? But basically, I don't, I don't want to characterize it too harshly. I don't want to say it was a failure, a system failure because many of the systems, as we are developing and evolving automatic, uh, say, emergency braking systems, we've evolved from just looking for a car that's, that's moving on the road straight ahead of us to looking for a stopped car on the road ahead of us to looking for cars intruding from, you know, the sides to, Cars coming in intersections to pedestrians walking, say, across the road sideways to pedestrians walking along the road frontways to uh, pedestrians along uh, side streets of streets we're crossing. And then there's the in bright light, in dim light, in darkness. You know, so we've, we have a huge evolution that's taking place. So when I say when there's a crash, there's a failure of the system, you know, I, I don't actually mean a true failure in the sense that it, didn't do what it was designed to do but if we say you know you take a 2016 crash avoidance system uh, you know it was designed to do this much to look for cars straight ahead and you know you look at a 2022 2023 system and they're they're looking at at a much wider set of, uh, of variables so so there were many collisions that weren't designed to be avoided you know in 2016 17 18 19 that are now being designed to be avoided. Uh, but you say, so, what are the ones we studied we We studied the ones where the system did not yet avoid that collision, and that has helped us to make systems which can avoid that collision you know in the future
0: yeah, that's huge and, and Tesla's doing things like fleet learning where they're they're sending a bunch of data to the mothership and processing it with machine learning and trying to figure out how to make sure that doesn't happen again and I'm sure other manufacturers are doing something similar, whether or not that's their methodology. They're not necessarily sending it to the cloud, but they're analyzing the data. They're analyzing the crashes. I have to suspect some manufacturers are going to that CISS system and pulling the data and looking at how their system performed. Um, and when they do, so when we go look at the data, you touched on it a bit already, but who does give us data in the CDR report with respect to ADAS function, who doesn't? And then when they don't, are we getting it places like vehicle control history or Tesla's vehicle data report? Um, how, how does that look? Where do we get ADAS performance data, and, and who gives it to us?
1: Uh, great question, and I should have had a list made for you, but I don't. Uh, so we of course know General Motors is giving us the advanced safety control module, so they're the they're the forefront of giving us data. Uh, we can say Ford, to my knowledge, uh, does not yet, to my knowledge, although I i have to be careful the uh, the latest uh, rc8 i need to double check to see if it's uh, if it's in there or not uh, say chrysler has be begun in some of their vehicles to say you know we're we're, we're warning or we're uh, we're breaking uh, toyota i don't think has put it in the cdr report but they clearly have it in the the toyota tech stream data that we can access publicly uh, i've noticed in honda the uh, they started putting it in gen 2s and 2016, just the, you know, has it, uh, is the system reacting? And if so, at what level that it is? Uh, I haven't seen it in all the Kia Hyundais, but starting with the 2019 Forte and in some of the, the more recent models, I've seen it showing up in Kia Hyundais. Uh, I don't have a great feel for, I I haven't made that chart yet, but uh, now that you've asked, I think I will.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's another thing I meant to mention on your site, you know, your site's awesome. I find myself there with some frequency. You have a lot of charts and compatibility uh, supported, uh, what vehicles are supported and what they offer for data. So we, we really appreciate that. And I mean, it's clear, like if you have to make the chart, then we're, we're in the wild, wild west past part Five Sixty Three. Like if you're adhering to part if you have an edr part 563 governs that but anything else it's just like kind of up to you and uh it's up to the reconstructionist to figure out what might be available via the various tools
1: yeah and so when i teach the analysis classes well well i try to give people a good understanding of what data is currently available you know our mantra is just just go Get the EDR data, open the report and look at it, and see which how much have you got to work with, you know. So we can uh, we, we can make all the charts we want to to predict what data you will get when you get there. But the bottom line is, get there, get the data, and just open it up and see what you got, and then use everything you can to the to the best of your ability.
0: Yeah, and GM is killing it. Um, like we were talking about earlier, they, we got GPS data now. We have a a, a clock. We get information about the target vehicle and the closing speed there. And then we get, like we were talking about before, ADAS intervention. So uh, do you think any, do you think anybody will follow suit there? I mean, it's obviously great to have the GPS data. We know where it happened. We know when it happened. That kind of bridges one of the big gaps in recon, which is well, you gotta sometimes do the whole recon just to figure out if that's your data. Uh, do you think people will follow
1: suit? I, I think you're gonna see the the Wild West still in progress and i think you're going to see different manufacturers making different choices so one of the analogies i like to use is is at the time that that i left ford you know it was a, a dark day for the automobile industry but basically you know gm and chrysler went out of business and ford came that close but uh, but the the ceo was laser focused and the ceo came out to the all the staff and said listen you know we're getting rid of half of you of the half that are left you can't do everything you did before so here's your guidance. If it doesn't sell more cars or it doesn't improve product quality, which will eventually sell more cars, don't do it. You don't have time for the shit. And so Ford, you know, consciously quit working on EDRs for say several years until they saw the regulation coming and said, okay, this is going to become a regulatory thing. So I have to work on it to be able to sell cars. Uh, so they they did go beyond what they had to do to their credit. Uh, that was say a few f- say uh, people with good vision in the room that uh, that that did that. But I, I think you saw that it's a lot of work. Uh, you know, it, I always say you know jobs are easy for the people that don't have to do it. So if you say like you know why don't why don't they just release all this data to Bosch? You know I I can tell you when I was in that interface position that you know, it was incredibly uh, time-consuming. And, uh, and while I, I guarantee the days are better now, I still remember a dark day back in 2003 where I wrote out the specification for one of our modules on a cocktail napkin and handed it to Jeff Wager, the programmer, and said, here's how to read this module family. <laughs> you know, no, when, when Bosch took over and they, uh, they found some of the cocktail napkins in the records, they, they said like, yeah, yeah yeah that's, no, that's like you know, we we need a formal specification yeah <laughs> you know.
0: that's not the german way of doing things you mean
1: uh, apparently not <laughs> uh, so so the uh, but what you see is that different companies will make different decisions so so at least my observation was that ford you know erred more on the side of well if we don't have to do it if it's not regulated and we don't have to do it you know why should we be spending time on this uh, and then there's a, in two different philosophies, you know, one says data is good. So first of all, data is always good for safety investigations. So the more data you have, the more you can figure out what happened. Now, then you get to litigation. Now, General Motors has figured out over time that data is also say, well, it's good for safety. It's great for litigation. So when, when you get sued, people tend to make up stuff. And say you know your car did this, that, and the other thing, and if you don't have data to defend yourself, you know who's to say that what that allegation that's being made isn't true. Now, you know GM was kind enough to share that that nugget with uh, with us at Ford. Although at Ford we we had that vice president of privacy that that at least initially really put a damper on our thinking of saying we'll only record things that we have to have to have to have to have to, to know that the system worked right. Uh, but when it came time to adding extra data, other than that meeting I was in back in 2006 that resulted in the 2009, I haven't seen a, uh, I haven't seen a tremendous leap forward from my friends at Ford. I've seen a, f- a few small steps, but I haven't seen that big leap forward the way that GM has. So, so clearly, you know, GM's in with both feet all the way. You know, and Ford is uh, saying, you know, well, well okay, uh, we can give you a little bit more. You know, Toyota gave us a big lump in 2013, and uh, and we're seeing, say, you know, like signs that they have uh, pedestrian modules. They'll give us some pedestrian data. Uh, we can get you know extra data from Toyota's, just not from the Bosch system. I think you have some people that are afraid that if the uh, if the product liability bad guys, as the as the auto, as the auto industry sees them, uh, get too much data. That they'll be able to say, you know, oh, you know, you should have you should have made your system differently. When when I was in the safety office, but working with assisting and defending product liability lawsuits, all that the plaintiffs had to do is to come up with a, a reasonable alternative design. Say, oh, you're designed it like this. If you would have designed it like that, you know, my guy'd still be alive today. Well, of course, you know, there's a difference, you know, for this accident, the, you know, and for let's say 80% of the accidents. The way this manufacturer did it was the better way, but for 20% of the accidents, that other guy's system might have performed better in that one. So if you give people too much information, you know, then it makes it easier for them to be able to say, oh, oh, well, well, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, for this accident, you should have had that system, you know, how come you didn't have that system over there? So I, I think that's a fear that some of the automakers have.
0: And and, uh, going back to GM and how they're pushing things, you mentioned it earlier, that forward uh, facing camera, what do they call it? The uh, front camera module. Yes. Uh, What what are we getting out of there? How often does it record? What do the images look like? Have you seen that data?
1: Yes. So uh, basically, say, while it's taking thousands of pictures and using that to discriminate the crash, when it comes to the memory, uh, we're storing three photographs, basically one from four seconds before the uh, critical event of interest, one at the moment of the critical event of interest, and one four seconds after that critical event of interest. Uh, I would say that the picture quality is pretty good. Uh, I believe the ones I've seen, they pretty, I think they're even color, uh, Not now no, I'm questioning, but I mean, compared to Toyota, Toyota takes like 20 grainy photographs and GM takes three good ones, you know? Pick, so the- Yeah, with the, exactly,
0: pick your poison.
1: Yeah, so so GM, uh, you know, it, it's been good. So in the case of, uh, for example, you know, pedestrian impacts, you can see. Uh, I think there was one where the pedestrian was approaching the roadway and then turned at an intersection. They they looked like they were going to go right across, but then they turned. So the system said, you know, warning, warning, Will Robinson, you know, pedestrian coming across the road. So it took a picture of them going sideways like this, you know. Well, then they turned and there wasn't really a threat, but it took a picture that now showed the pedestrian on the side of the road, you know, going along the side that no threat. And then it took one four seconds later with no pedestrian in the photograph and a car a quarter mile out ahead that said like, you know, yeah, danger, quarter mile, a car way out ahead, you know. So the third, the the last photograph was, you know, irrelevant, but uh, it, it did an excellent job. I mean, it was only three photographs, but it told the story. Why did the system activate, and then, you know, why was there not not a crash event that uh, that was avoided? Uh, I've got other ones where uh, you know a car broke down and people got out of the car and they're milling around the car. Uh, I'm actually speaking of a Toyota one now, where we get the uh, 20 grainy photographs, and you can see yeah, there's a car stopped in the road. Uh, the light's green and everybody else is going, but they're stopped in the middle of the lane of traffic, and people are out milling around and up comes my car from uh, behind, and you know it gets to the point where it says, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Car, people, <you> know? <laughs> uh, so it did avoid the collision, and the the driver did steer. You know, at the end, so you can see the driver say because it didn't have automatic steering, you can see the driver steer because the the focal point of the camera changed. So, so the uh, even even the grainy photographs are doing a great job. You know the. Uh, the Tesla photographs are, you know, that recorded by their video systems are incredibly high quality. You can, you know, you can see the pixels of the stoplight. You know, the little, <laughs> the uh, say the the, de- the detail of the texture of the uh, the stoplight surface, uh, and they're uh, they're in color, and you can see red red light, you know, green light, yellow light. Uh, I keep saying they're in color. I'm actually wondering if it's my imagination where they're in color. I right? think
0: Tesla's in color. Yeah. Tesla's okay. in color. That um, IPTM, when I saw Don Floyd speak to my recollection, the photos came in upside down in black and white, and you had to- They look, were
1: definitely re- upside down. You had to invert them top to bottom, not rotate them. Should say you had invert, not rotate. Otherwise, the if you, if you rotated, the car appeared to be on the wrong side of the road.
0: Yeah, exactly. So figure out where the, what country the car was in before you uh, confirm or, or that your rotation methodology was appropriate. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think they were black and white, but I, I, I don't really remember either. Um, Tesla is definitely color and, you know, uh, like the Tesla vehicles and any vehicle with the ADAS, I always say ADAS systems, but I guess the system's already baked in, but with ADAS they're obviously using the cameras to perform their functions. But from what I know right now, and I don't know what Rick Ruth knows, that's for sure, they're not recording any of that stuff unless being asked to by the operator. Is that your understanding as well? Like we're never gonna get video from a camera mounted on the B pillar of some uh, ADAS equipped vehicle, or not yet anyway.
1: First of all, just a disclaimer that I'm, I'm not tracking uh, the cameras on a, on a day-to-day basis. I I still sort of view the limits of my job as, Passenger car and light trucks event data recorders. Uh, I try to save a little bit of an awareness, but I'm I'm leaving some of that to Alan Moore. It's time for the time for the next generation. So I, you're, you're gonna you can count on me to remember all the 1994 to, to to 2020 stuff, but the 2020 and beyond, I think I'm I think I'm handed off to Alan. You know.
0: Yeah, I spoke with him yesterday, so uh, he's he's obviously a, a wizard and, and knows a bunch of that stuff. It does indeed take a village.
1: Yeah, but the uh, I think what you're seeing is that just for uh, sure memory size and processor, you know, time is that you know you you can't write down every picture, so they can process every picture for the function of the module, but they can't write it down. And if they do choose to write it down, you know, there's a limitation of the you know what is the pix, how many pixels, you know, are you going to have or uh, in that picture, uh, and there's certainly a trade-off as you say, GM. Three clear ones versus Toyota twenty grainy ones. Um, you know which is which is more important. And I, I think that for we in the reconstruction business, you know, it really comes down to you know the the, the big things. I think are first of all what color is the stoplight? Because I, I I always joke with my classes about you know say like yeah did you see the data element oh, the EDR for what color the stoplight was? Yeah, did you see that one? You know, it's like oh you didn't oh 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 it's not there, you know. So when we have somebody that you know decides to make a, a, a left turn, so now it comes down to you know visibility. You know what could the driver see at the time they made their decision to do the turn? What could they see? You know we always try to do time distance, and we try to do a a, a clock where we say could the could the car coming through the intersection, the one that's usually speeding like a bat out of hell, uh, you know is is uh, you know when the driver made the decision, you know. What should they have been able to see? Could they, could they even see the car out in front? Well, a camera is, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, if you've got a picture and, and there's nobody, no car visible, you know, uh, or they're obscured by other cars when the car begins to make its left, you'd say like, Oh, okay. They couldn't see, it, you know, then you come down to when could they become aware of it, you know, and then if so, what did they do? And I always say, you know, when you, when you, uh, in your middle of a left turn and you're, uh, you have an oncoming vehicle, you say, okay, I can stop dead in the middle of the road and get killed here, you know, or uh, I can floor it and try to get out of the way, which will work 2% of the time because you can't accelerate a car that fast, you know, or you can do the deer in headlights and just go "Ah, ah," (laughs) and do nothing, which is what 98% of the people do, uh, you know, and then they get whacked. Uh, But boy, if we had that picture with the view ahead, you know, that, that picture is worth more than a thousand words. And that's really the big hole in, in, in my personal opinion, when people present cases to me, I always say, well, what's the critical issue here? You know, it, you know, is is it a speeding case? You know, is, is, is it speed that caused a loss of control that caused a loss of life? You know, or is it, uh, you know, is it visibility that we, you know, driver couldn't see, you know, and it, a lot of the cases come down to what color is the stoplight? And we say you know, we keep looking for that data element for what color the stoplight is, and uh, you know it's not there. You know I've come up with some some uh, ways to try to infer it. Uh, you know we found that we have certain <laughs> markers of uh, people that when the light has changed, you know they push down a little harder on the gas pedal. Yep. You know, hundred uh, percent
0: throttle is generally an indicator that they saw yellow light at some point.
1: <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. Uh, So, but we really want the, what color is the stoplight? And and I see the camera as the, you know, until we get into interconnected vehicles, and I think they're still 10, 20 years out yet, where we have, uh, you know, a a controller for the stoplights that's beaming out the light pattern and have the cars picked up on picking up that signal and writing it down in an EDR, that's the 20 years from now EDR. You know, until we have that, the camera is the best short-term fix for what color was the stoplight and more also importantly what was the visibility of the driver of other vehicles that should have that may have influenced their decision whether or not it was safe to turn or not and I'm sure when we do that you as a motorcycle reconstructionist will that you'll you'll probably see a lot of uh, teeny tiny little motorcycles in the distance coming towards the cars and then getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger
0: <laughs> yep, never saw it he must have been going really fast because I never saw him. That's what I hear every time. Uh and, and so the the Subaru has the eyesight system, big, apparently extremely effective cameras. Uh that's not coming out in the CDR report, from what I understand. Is there a way to get data from those cameras?
1: Well, I I, might, I have been uh, some stories from law enforcement have been shared where they have asked Subaru to come out. And, you know, if you if you are so fortunate to like, you know, live in Orange County where subarus not not far down the street from you uh you know i'm with the impression that they have cheerfully sent an engineer out to look at some of those pictures now if you happen to be in the middle of missouri you know where it's a you know a couple of plane flights for a subaru engineer to get there you know i've heard that you know they asked but we're told uh sorry we we don't do that Uh, so you can imagine i mean if you're subaru you're a small company you can't have your your uh Say specialized engineers just doing nothing but flying all over the country, you know, doing it. Now, when I was at Ford, that was that was actually one of my great realizations why I worked so hard to get data released to the CDR system, was that you know, we were getting say to the point where hundreds of requests a year just to read the data out. And I said, Well, this is a really poor use of my time. You know, we're we're using a manager here that with you know 30 years experience. Just to push the button, the technician buttons and, and read the data and, and uh, send it out. I'd really rather let the police or other reconstructionists read it for themselves, you know, and write a set of data limitations that'll handle 90% of the cases, you know. Now, then if you have a question on the remaining, you know, five or 10%, ask away, you know, I might have enough time to handle those. But, you know, if, if, uh, if I have to go out and get the data, so I'm imagining Subaru's going through the same internal process saying, you know, what? They want me to send an engineer to Missouri, you know, and then next week to Alabama and next week to Wisconsin. You know, it's like, when's he going to get his work done? You know, and so so uh, what we all hope is that we'll ask Subaru enough times that they'll say, this is getting to be really bothersome, you know, and they'll say, maybe, maybe I should just let s- some third party, you know, Read this stuff out and, uh, you know, then they can use the data and they won't have to ask us to help them every time. So, so, uh, when I first left Ford, I strongly encouraged every officer that I taught. I said, like, every case you have, call them, call them and ask them to read it. You know, (laughs) say it might take a thousand of you before they get the message that it's more efficient if they release it to a third party system like Bosch.
0: I love it. I hope Kawasaki does that because last time I went to Kawasaki with a module in my hand uh, in Lake Forest, California, it was clear they were starting to tear their their hair out. And we're just like, okay, th- we get this so often. This is getting ridiculous. And it's like, all right, well, just give us a tool. We'll use the Denso tool. I mean, I know that's what you already use and we can do that. Just give us the magic decoder ring. And I don't want to write bits or anything like that, but I want to read them. Um, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if you keep up with Jeremy Daly at all, but uh, cybersecurity is a big thing of his. And obviously it seems to be where a lot of people are concerned now that we have these semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles. Uh, if somebody hacks into your Tesla, they could pretty much drive it. So has that affected uh, the way that we work at all and how we interrogate systems in, in the way that they're designed?
1: Well, the main way that it's affecting us is that uh, automakers are having to put in gateway modules so the gateway module is like a traffic cop that uh, when a, a command comes in it says give me something or do something you know it says do you have authority to make that request you know and it so it it basically checks to make sure it's a legitimate uh, request and if so it lets it through the gateway now how does that affect us uh in in some cases it affects the the vehicle system but usually the manufacturer will will tell bosch you know, how to satisfy the security guard that uh, that you're a legitimate questioner. Now, where we run into the trouble is when we go to back power. So when we go to back power, we're still using the Bosch system, but the electrical system is dead. And so the gateway module is not powered. So when the the command comes in from the Bosch system, it says, let me through the gate. The gateway is basically, you you know, asleep at the switch. So we can't wake the guard up to let us through. So what it means is that in addition to backpowering the airbag module fuse, we have to figure out, is there a gateway module? If so, what fuse is it on? And backpower the gateway module fuse, or just give up and go find the module, and take the module out or plug directly into the module. But it has made backpowering more difficult. And it has changed the uh, the names of the fuses we have to look for. So an example in Ford, uh, Ford makes a lot of police cars. So when we were at the Illinois conference, we had, you know, half the police cars in the lot were Ford Explorers. So we popped, started popping hoods up and trying to read them and uh, seeing what we could find out. And the, the fuse had evolved from airbag fuse to extended power module fuse. Uh, that, that meant that they kept the airbag module alive for a few seconds. So they didn't have the GM, uh, Key turn off problem where the key would turn itself off and then the airbag wouldn't work in a crash. So, so first they, the first step was just keep the airbag fuse on, but through now a, a switch. So they didn't call it the airbag fuse anymore. It was the extended power control module. Well, then, now then they put a gateway in. So then we had to find the smart data link connector fuse you know, and back power the smart data link connector fuse. But then there were two of those. So then we had to start guessing which one and do each one sequentially. And we figured out that one of them powered the DLC. Good. We needed that one anyway. Uh, you know, and then the other one powered the security gateway module that we go. So so anyway, we, it, it took it from just, you know, look at the fuse box cover, and look for airbag. To, uh, creeps, we need to pull the frickin' diagrams for the vehicle, you know, and, and a lot of those black boxes, you know, when I, when I say, I should say in the wiring diagram, they don't show you the guts of the module. So you'll just see a wire going in and a wire coming out. And, you know, it doesn't tell you what that wire did in the middle, you know, but in some cases that was the gateway module and the, the magic was it decided whether or not to let you through. Yeah, as
0: if backpowering wasn't stressful enough already. But uh, I do
1: appreciate not
0: having my car hacked and driven off of a bridge. So I guess I'll take the gateway module. Uh, Not that my car is sophisticated enough to be hacked at this point, my 2018 Toyota Tundra. But um, speaking of the sophisticated cars, what do we know? And this might be a question better for Alan, but do we know like Polestar, uh, Rivian, Lucid, are they going to play ball on any level? Are we going to get data from those guys?
1: A great question that I don't know the answer to yet. Um, so I was uh, down at IIHS and pulling modules from cars for research purposes, and they had several Rivians down there. And I said, like, you know, well, do I get, say, do I harvest this module or not? It'll take me about an hour to get it out from the smashed up vehicle. Uh, well, I'll come back if we ever get to read them. <laughs> so, so what it meant is that, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that the, that Rivian is thinking about because in uh, Rivian, while EDRs are not required in the United States, they can get away with selling them here. You know, should they decide to enter worldwide markets, uh, you know, 2024 in China, you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to have an EDR at, at the, a second higher level. And if you're going to sell in Europe, they're going to honor the United Nations, uh, proposal that's going to require some type of a, of an EDR. So if you want to sell in a worldwide markets, you're going to have to have one. So the real question uh, for, you know, for Rex is, is, uh, people have to think globally now, not just locally. So Rivian is fine for today in the United States, but is Rivian intending to go global? I, I don't really know yet mean, the Rivians that I saw were monstrous SUVs. <laughs> so I I don't know if they have a real big market in the Southeast Asia, but, but uh, I, I could say, boy, have they got the United States market pinned down here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they definitely do. That's uh, me and my family. I have three kids, so we're looking for the biggest SUV we can get. Um, and so, yeah, that's it. Just uh, I talked with uh, Mark Crouch last week. He's a reconstructionist who specializes in some video stuff, and he's in uh, the London area. And man, we were talking about the frustrations of those vehicles being equipped with EDRs, but he's not allowed to interrogate them it sounds like that's changing. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm in the States. I'm always so focused on the States. I, it makes me, uh, I forget that people across the pond don't necessarily have it as well as we do. And so many of the vehicles don't have black boxes that they can get data from. Um, but so it sounds like things are changing via some of the, uh, uh, the UN or, or the, that you were speaking about. And then China is, you were telling me, mandating modules even when there's no airbags, which I don't know who has cars without airbags anymore, apparently China. But um, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? That's interesting.
1: Well, China, uh, and and a lot of this uh, information comes uh, through Don Floyd uh, because he, I was particularly curious to know his experience because he's, as their global EDR chairman, has had to be on the front lines of satisfying it. And he said that, that, China entered into the EDR world with a basically a flawed premise. You know, their, their premise was, you know, we're going to do this once and for all. We're going to make, you know, one size fits all EDR. We're going to tell everybody, you know, exactly what to write down, what memory address to write it in, how many bits and bytes it was going to take up, what the resolution was. It was, it was going to be, we're going to make everybody do it exactly the same way. So we can make one tool. And, you know, the one tool will just say, you know, dump it and it'll tell you every, everything in it. Um, but they, you know, they did it at a point in time. So by making a, a one size fits all, never changes. They didn't allow for any future expansion, you know, or a addition of any other future data elements. And they did it in a way that, that, uh, basically they didn't want to pay Bosch, I think. They were going to buy a hundred thousand of these things and give one to every intersection traffic officer they had. And, and the officer was allegedly going to just plug into every car after a crash and say, you're at fault. You know, you're not, and you are now you and I know from the work that we do here, that it takes a lot longer than that. Most times that it's not always immediately apparent, even if you have the EDR report in front of you, you know, on site that, that, uh, you say like, well, this is a, you know, who's, so somebody turned left in front of somebody that was going a little bit over the speed limit, but when they turn left, you know, could, what could they see was, should they have, you know, allowed more time for their left turn? Or is it all the fault of the person coming through the other way? Who has the right of way? You know, not, not so easy, you know, but uh, China just assumed that, you know, oh, it's, uh, it's going to be immediately obvious to a hundred thousand officers that have not had any training, you know, That's what we were all afraid
0: of in the early 2000s. We're like, oh, they got EDR data. They don't need recons anymore. But like you said, that that was clearly not the case. That does not, it's not how it works.
1: Yeah. And because China was uh, so restrictive about how they did it, saying it must be done exactly this way, they basically boxed themselves out of using a a United Nations, uh, you know, global proposal where it could be part of a worldwide solution. So the, the, uh, so the China one is going to say from what the uh, current take on the market is, is that they will have their own EDR and it's like General Motors, they'll have the General Motors EDR in it too, and the China EDR. They're going to have to make a special just for China, you know, EDR. And it's kind of like wasted, wasted money, you know, in the sense that the, uh, GM doesn't even know if they can trust that the China EDR because who is going to make the tool? And you know what, the GM will not have a contractual relationship with uh, the toolmaker, for example, potentially. Whereas you know, if, if Bosch screws up, GM calls Bosch in and says, like, you know, hey, you know, it's like you you say I'm counting on you to meet my regulatory requirements. You know, you screwed up. I'm a big part of your business. You know, it's like fix it. You know, whereas in China, if something goes wrong, you say. You know what does General Motors say? It's like, oh, so the polarity's wrong on your, you know, GM car. I'm I'm terribly sorry. You know, it's like, who made that tool?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that's tough.
1: So I mean, they technically China can say, you know, well, we told you it had to all be the same, you know, but but uh, there's going to be some some missteps there.
0: Uh, the big question is, uh, you got most of it. I think you you handled China perfectly. My next thought is uh, is what's going on in England? Are they going to finally get some additional support and be able to download, open up that that market, and download a bunch a bunch more cars?
1: Well, the answer is eventually. So I, I uh, actually just had a, a good conversation in part of preparing for this with a, a police officer in Rotterdam, uh, the Netherlands, who's uh one of um, my my partners in europe the udarts group uh does training they took off from the training that i that i started and and they actually deliver it in uh every every imaginable european language you can think of uh over there but the the uh, i i said like you know hey you you just got the regulation and before this you had toyotas you know you had volkswagens 2018 and later you had volvos uh, you had a few of the fiat the, of the fiats from the Fiat Chrysler Group, um, but your regulation said everybody has to have an EDR if it's a newly designed car, and he said, "Yeah, guess what? Nobody made a newly designed car, so we got no EDRs in the first wave of the the European regulation." He said, "No, that's you know going to change, so you know th- so you know another year year a year and a half down the road, we're going to get the next phase of the regulation kicking in where Old designs, you know, have to be fitted with EDRs, and then we should get some more of them. But he said, right now, he said, you know, we're we're still not getting a lot of them. So for example, a Ford in Europe, you know, if you put the European VIN in, it says, you know, I don't support European, you know, Fords say, well, what if I tell you you're an American car, you know? And he said it'll it'll go and it'll it'll get some bits out, you know, but but it might not have a US software ID. So it might, you know, it might catch, you know, hiccup on the software ID and say, well, I'm not supposed to read that one. He said, say, but he said, some of them, I'll see them come back and we'll get like a few bits. So I know they're talking. So I know that, I know they know how to talk to each other, but I only see, you know, this, this So I know there's data in there, but they're not giving it to us. you know. So, so they're uh, apparently some of the Europeans have, have the on off switch, the, say the uh, electronically it's not a physical on off switch we're not allowed to have those and don't want those but that you know they at the factory they have the ability to program edr on or program edr off so many of the european ones are programmed you know edr off uh mercedes i believe he was citing was a similar situation they could they could communicate they they suspect there's data in there but they can't get it out with the bosch system yet now BMW uh, I've had a little bit more luck with.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like what what if I'm reading between between the lines, it's like five to ten years or so they should start to see a lot more uh, compatibility.
1: Yeah, I mean it's like we've we've had our regulation for ten years, and now we live in a fabulous world where the vast majority of our vehicles have at least some kind of an EDR that we can read. Many with the Bosch tool, with the Bosch and the Kia tool, you know, we can say we're up to say not just 99 percent of the new ones but probably getting pretty close to 75 80 percent of the cars on the road it's primarily cars you know before 2012 of that weren't general motors weren't ford you know and say well say chrysler goes back to like 06 but uh, we've got the big four pretty much covered so we say what's not covered in the united states it's not the big four and before 2013.
0: We got a lot. We got a, a, nice, uh, a nice, a nice buffet to choose from. Like you said, it's rare. You know, you get a, I mean, geez, you get a crash now where neither vehicle has EDR on it, and then you kind of feel like you're flying blind. It's like a middle-aged, uh, dark-aged uh, mm-hmm. uh, reconstruction. And I, I feel bad for our European brethren who are still dealing with that, especially on challenging cases where they just a, a quick download would tell them so much.
1: I just say they've made their bed and now they have to sleep in it. They're very privacy conscious and they, you know, they didn't want to, uh, uh, say invade the privacy of the driver. So they haven't, uh, now it's a, it's the debate whether, you know, in the United States, we talk about what is the public interest and what is the private interest. So we've struck a balance that we think is reasonable for the United States in Europe, they struck the balance a little differently. You know, then we struck it, but now they've changed their mind. So, for many years, the balance was on privacy for them, and now the the balance is coming is swinging the other way in terms of data that's in the public interest.
0: I got to get a bumper sticker that says "Pro Data," something like that. You
1: know, <laughs> uh, one one thing that's interesting is the way the Europeans have dealt with the privacy issue is that they've said that they want to make sure that whatever tool is used does not download the then. Because the VIN can be traced via databases back to the driver. They want the record to be, you know, independent, say somebody drove that car, but we have no idea who and can't find out who. We can only tell you there was a crash, you know, and they want de- they want to not have GPS data to identify the location, and they don't want to have time, you know, to say exactly when it occurred because all those things could be used to go look up and say, well, who was driving that car that crashed on you know march the uh, 11th at 3:42 uh, in the afternoon at this intersection you know that, that you could use that information to get back to the driver so they wanted to decouple de-identify it now but they as they try to do the balance they say but wait a minute we also want to be able to study cars by group and say you know like you know do people die more in small cars than large cars of course they do You know, say, do people die more in, you know, Corvettes than they do in Priuses? You know, you know, of course they do because of the way the driver behaves, you know, Uh, but they're, they're struggling with the, well, how do I write down what kind of a car it is for research purposes, but I don't have the VIN. And so you say like, well, wait a minute now, if you had the, so I'm just going to make up a scenario, say like, well, if your Bosch tool was networked to the internet and you had internet out in the junkyard. You know, you could enter the VIN and it could go look up the type and download it and put that in the EDR record, but then not write down the VIN. Sound complicated? Yeah. And you say, but what if, and what if you don't have internet out in the junkyard? It's like, well, you know, do you write the VIN down in the CDR record, but then you come back and you go to the database and change it to what is acceptable to put in the record and then you erase the VIN? You say, well, wait a minute. How do we know that they erased it? You know it's like they don't have to you know they could just keep the original record so so the europeans are struggling with you know how do i how do i do this how do i balance this privacy you know and the rest so the only thing that's that's pretty universal is they don't want the vin in the record you know and we saw that same thing with nitza when nitsa's researchers go out they actually had a rule where they couldn't have the VIN in the record Bosch actually made a special version of CDR just for NHTSA that doesn't record the VIN.
0: Yeah. And that makes sense because those are publicly available. It's a publicly available database with all the photographs and everything. The VIN being a private issue is like anybody can walk up to my Tundra and read the VIN off. Right now, there might be somebody standing over my windshield looking at my VIN for all I know. And what do I care? Uh, a. And then B, it seems somewhat hypocritical that they have all these speed cameras on the highways that are capturing vehicles, speeding, and whoever's in the driver's seat. Um, Yet, you're not going to let us get the VIN for research purposes to try to uh, reduce how many people are dying in fatal crashes every year when it's such a big issue? That just seems very short-sighted and uh, silly. But uh, what do I know? I'm just a reconstructionist uh, who specializes in motorcycle crashes. Uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, go through like, this is my speed round, Rick. It's not as fast as probably your average guy's speed round because um, <laughs> you and I seem to like the chat. Uh, but I was kind of, you know, obviously one of the big uh, points of my my presentation coming up is is the future. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit and see if we could use your crystal ball. And I think somebody who started in 1973 and is still going at it 50 years later, is that 50 years? Yeah. Um, Probably is in a good position to say, well, this is how I've seen it evolve and this is where I see it might go. And you might be able to shut down some of these questions and say, that's never going to happen. And one of those questions is, are we ever going to get, do you ever think we'll get video as part of, of a download, videos of a crash? We're getting photos right now, but it sounds like there are some big technological challenges associated with. Processing and storing video as part of an EDR report. Say,
1: yeah, it, it's. Uh, I don't see it, uh, you know, in the next five years, just because of of memory and size limitations. But heck, electronics are getting better every year. Uh, they're not just getting you know better, cheaper, and in more importantly, in smaller spaces, uh, because actually the the physical room to uh, to put these things into airbag modules they they ran out of room some time ago. And they have to rely on on technology improvements to scrunch the box up a little bit to to make room for anything else, in particular capacitors to keep it running, to take things out of temporary memories and put them into uh, double prom or flash memories. After the crash is over, you got to keep the module running for a while, and that data transfer takes time. So, uh, can I see it in in the future? I I can see it, but it at the moment it's it's uh, so far out that it's a. Uh, kind of hazy and on the horizon, uh, I would, so this is, these are pure guesses on my part, but I'd say, you know, and then I would say people would say something can't be done or constantly being interrupted by people saying, well, this guy's already doing it, or this country's already doing it. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I don't see it happening for at least five years and maybe 10 years until, until we can, uh, develop the, the capability, uh, to be able to store that and to, also to make the case that it's in the public interest to uh to have you know true uh, true video i think the the short term solution of a modest number of photographs is still pretty uh, a pretty decent solution the toyota every 6 tenths of a second in my mind is uh is better than the gm -40 +4 um because i think that to me, it's a really big deal in the left turn situation to say, when did the other car come into view? Um, and with the, a picture every six tenths of a second, you've, you've got a shot at that.
0: Yeah, and you've got to placate the uh, privacy attorneys as well. So uh, the odds of getting, say, uh, uh- video of the cabin seems highly unlikely. And maybe they'll even balk at video of the outside world at the time, because you might catch a pedestrian who's robbing a bank on the corner. And that's not cool. You can't do that. Um, You're violating the criminal's privacy. Um, And and what about uh, what about post crash data? Uh, You know, like the big rigs, we're getting 10 seconds of post crash data or whatever it is. Uh, Actually, I'm going to talk to the Delta V guys later this week. But you think there's any chance we'll get post crash data like past collision pulse?
1: The the short term uh, issue is power loss and having to keep the module running with capacitors. The uh, we don't say all those capacitors you see on the boards today keep the module alive for zero one five seconds. And if you want to keep see to keep running for five seconds, you know that's uh, that's actually like thirty times more uh, capacitor. So the so then the, the question is where do you where do you put that capacitor? It doesn't fit you know, in there. So I I don't see it happening a, a lot. Uh, now, I've seen several EDRs not covered by CDR that tried to do that. So an example, the 2008 Ford F-250 was set up to go from minus five to plus five. Uh, now, they assumed that the vehicle would have power for the plus five, and if the vehicle didn't have power, it just wouldn't populate. You know, the CAN bus wouldn't keep running, and you just wouldn't get any data coming in, so it Filled with FFs or zeros um, in there, so I, I think it's uh, it's thought of as a nice to have. It's not thought of as a gotta have. Uh, it's primarily the the emphasis on the public interest is how did the first collision happen, and everything after the first collision is collateral damage. You know that say like okay, so so we rolled sixteen times. You know it's like, do we really, do we really care? I mean there might be a few liability attorneys that care and say you know you should have uh, you know your your uh, inflatable curtain should have stayed up for another five seconds so my guy could go 125 and roll his car
0: how how inconsiderate yeah exactly
1: um, but I, I i don't see it as a high priority and and where i really notice it is in the newer toyotas that have the 17 edrs that have the ability to store four front events four side two rollover uh, and they've got six sets of pre-crash data. So in those rollover crashes, I've got 10 events in the memory. And, and I actually tell people when you're analyzing these don't start at the first one in the memory, that's the, that's the end of the rollover. You don't care about that. Go find the first one Do do the speed round through the 10 events, find the big Delta V, you know, the biggest one in the, in the thing, say, that's your first event. Say lock in on that one, figure out why that one happened. And then go see, is there anything else in here that we actually need to worry about? But I tell people if you have, you know, events ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, it's like, well, we don't know if they if one and two weren't related. I say if you find out the first one was three, go analyze three. You know, if you start at ten, by the time you get to three, you're you know, you're you're starting to nod yes. off you know you you've,
0: that's what i was gonna say you got to be well rested with a cup of coffee for yeah,
1: that. yeah you've uh, you've lost focus you know because you spent so much time on what is irrelevant and you know frankly once a car starts rolling it's it's everything's just going bangity bang 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 there's there's lots of noise but not much critical data to help you analyze the the crash but if you start at the beginning of the wreck and work your way forward say first get the the cause of the first event and then if if important work your way forwards from there but don't start at the most recent event not anymore that's that's the uh the old bad way to do it
0: (laughs) that's interesting and that and that brings up actually the the next question that i was thinking about which i reached out to a couple friends who uh who i trust and have been in the business for a very long time and i said hey i got i got a chance to pick rick ruth's brain tomorrow what do you want to talk about and the, the perpetual fear, and I think it's been in existence for 25 years, is, uh, well, more advanced EDRs are going to uh, eradicate the need for us pesky recons. But as you're talking about, you know, a file like that, the more advanced the data, it seems the more advanced the recon has to be, not, not the opposite. But what's, what's your take on, on you know, video and ADAS and advanced EDR systems? Is that ever going to uh, put us on the sideline where we got to go start flipping burgers at in and out <laughs>
1: No, Uh, no, you're say uh, it's going to come out just the way it's come out for the last, say, 15, 20 years, that it's more data that's going to take you more time to analyze. It's going to increase your billable hours. And, you know, you're going to have a momentum, say, just as when we had momentum analysis and then EDR, we had to say, well, now we have to say, do they agree? And if they didn't agree, spend time on fitting them together to figure out like, you know, what was wrong with the EDR, or what was wrong with the momentum? Did we get the drag factor wrong? Did we did the tires leave the roadway? Were we in a yaw? You know, you had more things you had to think about. It was more billable hours. Uh, and the other thing we're going to see is that that uh, the data is going to become overwhelming to the layman. So you know, even some of the more recent uh, Chrysler uh, reports and some of the more recent Toyotas have auxiliary sensors in them. Data from the the side satellite sensors and the front, you know, front auxiliary sensors. Well, it, we don't use that data in reconstruction, but it's more pages in the report. You know, I'm now dealing with, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 page EDR reports. And out of all that, you know, it still comes down to probably, you know, three pages that make or break, you know, my, my analysis of that file, but I've got to sort through 97 pages just to come out with the, you know, what's important for my reconstruction. So I think the the skill that the reconstructionist will need is to more quickly sort through the chaff, discard the chaff, you know, and the, and get the wheat from it. Now, in the case of the videos, you know, once you find the video and you find, you know, the million dollar shot, you know, the one that we all, you know, learn, yearn for in our inspections, the million dollar photograph that shows this defect or shows that, you know, uh, bolt that was loose or that part, you know. It's the same way in the video. You're going to be looking for the million-dollar shot in the video, and if you find it, you know, great, more power to you. That's going to help prove the case. But the uh, I I don't see it ever putting us out of business. I see it, it's going to require more sophisticated, um, say, reconstructionists that are able to comprehend what they are looking at.
0: Yeah, that's and that's exactly what my. Experience has been so far, you know, if I get a case now that has uh, EDR data, it has surveillance video, then that case is going to take me a really long time to make sure that all of my traditional calculations are in agreement with the video analysis that has to be performed independently, that has to uh, align and agree with the EDR analysis, which is performed independently. And And it's quite frankly, just gotten to the point now where I can take way fewer cases than I used to. Um, the analyses are just more in depth, more complicated. So I just have to throttle back how many cases I subject myself to. And, uh, that's been a learning process because I'm still probably taking too many cases.
1: Well, I, it's what I think you're seeing is, is that putting all the data together is the challenge for the modern reconstructionist. We say, what will the reconstructionist look like, you know, five to 10 years from now they'll have all, they'll have 10 times as much data. But the job will still be to, to fit it together. So, I mean, just as a quick example, you know, I get a lot of calls where people say, you know, help me understand the CDR file. They say like, you know, well, okay, here's, I've got, you know, two different levels of service. One is, is we put it up on the, you know, on the zoom and I walk you through it and say, well, here's what I see, you know, and, uh, here's what I think is important. But now it's up to you to figure out, does that match your post crash travel? Does that match your momentum? Does that match, you know, your witness statements, you know, you know, or you want me to write a report. If I'm going to write a report and put my name on it, you know, we start at 10 billable hours and we work our way up, you know, depending on how much stuff there is. Because if I'm responsible for the final conclusion, then I need to know all that other stuff, not just the EDR. You know, so so I offer, uh, say, the the one or two-hour consult, which for most reconstructionists is what they need because they don't have the 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 specialty analysis that I, you know, that I do, but you know somebody's got to put it all together, and that's not an easy job. And the more data that we have, the more the more things we have to cross check to see that they they all do fit together. So so I think that is the the modern reconstructionist. It's it's almost like you're the you know the big picture manager. Uh, you might have to have, you know, you might have to end up doing consults with you know the uh, the drone guy, you know, and the uh, say you know the the original uh, say. You know, guy who shot the scene with the uh, conventional thing, you know the uh, again the wit- say the witness interviewer that the attorney's hired, and and you're you're taking all this stuff and putting you know the, the momentum guy, the crash simulation guy was the Terry the Terry Day guy, the Burla guy, you know it's like you know it's like who who can do all those things well at the same time, you know there very few of us that I know of, you know now that's why I also see you've seen the the engineering firms getting a call it a, a bigger hunk of the market share that they can have you know an office with ten people in it you know where one does the uh, you know the uh, Ed crash simulation or another one does the Terry Day you know uh, you know simulation and another one does the say analyzes the drone footage another one analyzes the uh, the Berla data uh, they say I'd actually like to know how many how many people actually can do all that themselves, and if so, how much do they charge? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, that for their their overall invoice is going to be huge, and if they have the talent to be able to accomplish all that, their bill rate is probably pretty high. And I mean, you just hit perfectly on a theme that has come up throughout all these podcasts and. Uh, I think my first podcast was with uh, Jeff Mutart, and that was his big takeaway is like, hey man, at the beginning of my career, I could do the whole recon. It's just not feasible anymore. There's too many parts that come into play. Obviously, he's not doing recon at all anymore. He's just doing human factors, Mm -hmm. which speaks to that same uh, concept itself. But yeah, you're gonna need, it's gonna be a multidisciplinary effort, or you're gonna have to take one case a year and try to attack every single angle of it yourself uh I, I love it is there any chance of uh this came from Jared Carter one of my good friends and a great reconstructionist out of Washington and he was saying is there any chance that this ever gets standardized as far as what's recorded how it's uh pulled from the vehicle and how it is reported is there any chance I know you're uh, you're involved with the ISO and ASTM and SAE Okay. The tiny little chance. So you're, so you're saying there's a chance, but it's just
1: very small. Well, I, I, so first of all, I mean, we do have the United Nations. They have no power authority, <laughs> but you know, they, they've, they have made an effort. They've come up with the UN 160 called universe, say uh, EDR proposal, you know, to say, you know, here's what we recommend. So if you're Jamaica, for example, you know, I, I, I teach in J- Jamaica and I, uh, I have a good personal relationship with them and they say, you know, how do we get all this data here in Jamaica? And I say, well, you need a regulation. The problem is you're Jamaica. If you make a Jamaican regulation all by yourself. You know, the big companies are going to say like, you know, <laughs> who do you think you are you yeah. know, telling us what to yeah. do just for your country? You know, so say, so we say, what is the power? You know, the United nations has the, the the power of the pulpit to say, listen, if anybody needs an EDR regulation, here's a model regulation we recommend that you adopt. Now, what we've always run into is that, that you always run into somebody who says, well, that's fine, but I need something special. You know, that's not gonna work for me. I need my own and that's China. Okay, so China said like, you know, wait a minute, this this stupid regulation doesn't capture rickshaw crashes. You know, it's like, you can't, you can't have an EDR that doesn't capture rickshaw crashes. You know, it's like, uh, this, this five mile an hour Delta it is stupid, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so you're going to have people that do that. And then you've got the, the privacy interests and the, you know, public interest people fighting it out. So the, you know, you've got the Europeans that are saying no VIN, and you're, you've got the United States people that say, well, the VIN is the whole way we set the tool up. You know the key off the vin to know how to read the data in the car so how do i read the data in the car if i don't know what you know the vin is or something to tell me what i'm what i'm reading um, so at, at the moment i i still see you know the the so besides the the us china europe you know there's a there are minorly different regulations in korea japan um you know in, in korea if you don't read the edr out when somebody asks you to Corporate executives can be sent to jail. Uh, you know, it's an in- interesting nuance to the regulation. You
0: know, <laughs> they, uh, that sounds intense. Uh,
1: so the uh, you'll still see you know called vested interests in different countries, and and I think what you really see is that regulations, you know, unfortunately, are largely made by bureaucrats. You know, and and, and I don't mean to pick on the you know I, I live in Washington D.C. now, so I beginning to gradually understand the mentality, (laughs) but bureaucrats think they're intended to regulate something and they, they, they just, they have in their mind what's important. uh, And they don't always ask the people that are involved in the industry. You know, now when I was at Ford, I was offered up to go to NHTSA and explain EDRs to them and everything, but all at the time that I, I did that, my impression was all they cared about was that they had the cost justify and say that this thing was free. And so that I got five thousand questions on, you know, the cost of each little bite and bit in the, in the thing, because they wanted to say it didn't cost anything, and and I was trying to say, you know, here's, you know, you need this data to understand crashes, and they said, oh, don't, don't, don't bother, don't bother me with that stuff. I, I, I'm a regulator. I need to write a regulation, and the regulation has to be cost effective. So <laughs> let's let's grill you on cost for another hour here, you know. Uh, and, and sounds like the, the GM tried to help China to go down the right path of here's the data that you need. But China said like, you know, no, I got my mind made up. I, I want this one size fits all EDR, uh, and I want it to be not, uh, to not have to pay Bosch. I want to be able to have a Chinese company do something. And I want it to be a no brainer. You just take this data element from here and interpret it that way. And that data on from there and interpret it that way. Uh, So if you say, are we ever going to get the whole globe together? I'd like to use and fall back on my Ford uh, experience. Back in 1981, Ford went to make a, I forget if it was a a Fiesta or an Escort, but a a small car. And we we swore we were going to have it the same between the US and Europe because that was the way that was going to save money if we could have a common platform between the two. So we started down that road, everything was common along the way, you know, every little provincial engineer in their own little chimney would say like, you know, well, you know, the way those guys did say, we need just a little, just a little different, you know, over, over over here, we don't have that, you know, we don't make any of those nuts over there. We, we need this nut over here. When we got all done, say there's something like 15,000 parts in a car. There was one bolt that was left common. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So,
0: so it's a really small chance.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the only way it works is if you have a power figure at the top. So at Ford, when Alan Malali came in, he came in and he said, you know, what kind of problems have you guys had? We said, ah, we should really all have global platforms, you know, but we can't seem to make it happen. He said, well, why, why not? And we said, well, everybody just, you know, decides they need to have their own little special thing. You know, and uh, just another trivial example, but in India, uh, if you have like an escort size car, well, the guy who owns the car, if he can afford an escort in India, he's the boss. He sits in the back seat. You want a limo size back seat for him. The driver is, you know, hired for 50 shekels. You know, nobody cares about the driver. But, you know, in this country, we want to have a big front seat, Texas front seat for the driver, and there's nobody in the back. So we don't care. So the uh, you know try try to make one vehicle common between India and the United States. Different market, different demands. You know, very difficult to do. So anyway, Malali came in at the top, and and uh, he is a very humble man. Uh, he basically just said said common platforms make it so. And said like you know well we tried that before but it didn't work. He said like he said make it so. He said anybody wants an exception say tell them they have to come see me and i will tell them make it so make it common and uh, you know to this to this day as they say he said he says i didn't come up with any of these ideas i just listened to all you people and did what you told me but he made it happen because he you know had absolute authority within ford motor company but now we say what do we do about global edrs where we have have, you know, say, 25, 50, 100 manufacturers worldwide, who has authority over them? The answer is no one. So the United Nations has the power of the pulpit to suggest. And if enough people adopt the United Nations suggestion, you know, it will tend to take off uh, and become wider. But we still see so many regional provincial interests that say, I need something different. So that's why the chances are this big. We
0: might be left with, uh, instead of one bolt that is common, we'll be left with one bit that is common and everything else will be different.
1: We'll, we'll have speed data <laughs> and Delta V. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and so, I mean, like you were saying before, uh, with the wild, wild west, uh, that was your term that we that you used before we started recording, and then I might have I might have stolen it during you, this conversation. You did. But <laughs> I, I, um, I'm admitting it now. If anybody's still listening, they'll they'll get the truth at this point. Um, so, your, uh, event, uh, ultimately, it's up to the reconstructionists to have their finger on the pulse, to know what the right tool is for the job, to know what data they might get from X, Y, or Z, and that's that's a big undertaking so ultimately we're all going to have to learn to, how to stay educated, how to keep our finger on the pulse and how to adapt. Uh, do you have any recommendations for us the best way to, to stay in tune with what's going on?
1: Well, I mean, uh, frankly, it's, it's go to your regional and, uh, and national conferences where people appraise you of what's, you know, what's new, what do you need to be thinking about this year? You know, what's new on the table. Uh, so I've just used the example in EDRs, you know, it's the uh, Andy Rich and Bob uh, Skerlock paper on adjusting for the EDR location. You know, it's like for for 20 years that I was in the business, we just said, ah, EDR, it's, it, it's sort of on the center of gravity, almost, kind of, sort of, pretty close, you know, and for the front funnel and front angle crashes, it was close enough. But there was that occasional crash that was, On the front bumper or the back bumper that was a t-bone fashion where you say whoa it makes a big difference there and you know when i started in edr i used to say there's no crash that i can't explain i was a little pompous you know the say you know how young people are you know those 50 year olds those youngsters you know uh (laughs) you know they'll be a little pompous and they they think they can do anything you know and then you stay in the business long enough you eventually get one where you you get it and you say these numbers don't make sense. Oh. Why don't they make sense? Because I'm I'm using my old, you know, conventional hat and I haven't yet learned the new the new tool of adjust for the module location. So you say for that, you know, like one in fifty cases where the module location makes a difference. Say so we say, what is it that the, the, the reconstructionist needs? He needs to have the awareness of all these idiosyncrasies and tools. Just enough, you know, he doesn't have to be able to solve everyone personally, but he's got to have the awareness to say something funny is going on in this one. And I know it, you know, and I I may not have practice in this one, but I got to throw this one to the specialist to say, say, help me out here because there's something weird going on.
0: Uh, and, And
1: that's the skill that I think is going to be the hardest skill in our, in our information age of too much information. It's going to be the, the, the people that have either the gut feel, you know, that says something's wrong here, or the, the, uh they've been to enough uh, conferences, they've heard about the different things to say, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, I heard something, I, I remember hearing at one of the conferences, you might have to adjust for the module location. And they said it was only a few crashes. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is one of those, you know, oh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to need to either go research that or go study up on it or do it. Uh, but I think that's the, the challenge is the reconstructionist has to be the, the big picture vision of what's important in this one. What do I need to focus on in this one? Are there any special circumstances that I, that I need to consider for this one that, that maybe 90% of them are just plain vanilla crashes. Don't even need to think about it. You know, it's like, who, who can be that person that decides this one's plain vanilla and this one is, uh, you know, is tutti frutti, you know, uh, gumdrop, you know? Yeah.
0: I like those tutti frutti gumdrops. Uh, yeah, exactly. That, it, that's, I love, I love how you, uh, brought all that up and put it together. And it's something that, you know, like in my career, I started really, uh, I probably went to my first, uh, crash conference there in Vegas with Scott Baker in 2003 or 2002. And I remember just showing up to that conference and being like, there is so much information I have to know. And you kind of have to steepen it for a decade before you start picking up all these little things that you need to be aware of. That's me. I'm probably just a slow learner. But the bottom line is you do indeed have to go to all these conferences. You have to speak with other reconstructionists. You have to take classes. Uh, it, it, without doing that, you're not going to have that word. I would love to use that word. You're not going to have the awareness to know when you're in trouble and when something funky has reared its head. So uh, I will just recommend taking your course. Take one from Rusty Hate. You This is, uh, and you told me this during your class, take one from Rusty Hate. take one from Brad Muir, take one from Kent Boots, find whoever, go to conferences, listen to Adam Hyde from Northwestern talk about it. Anything you can do, and, and right now you're teaching a class. From what I understand, at SAE and IPTM. Yes,
1: And IPTM we have a level one and a level two. Level one is, you know, for call it geared towards your law enforcement officer just getting into it, and level two is for your state cop that's been in it for five or ten years, but has run across those weird ones that uh, where they need the need the specialty stuff, but you know they don't have any. They can't go hire somebody. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they have to do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. So, so level two is a- uh, Well,
0: yeah, that's one of the big challenges is the poor law enforcement officers. They might not have the opportunity to accumulate this multidisciplinary team like us private guys might have the luxury of doing. Uh, but sorry, I cut you off.
1: No, it's okay. I was just going to say that you know the level two is typically triangular velocity vector method, uh, it's offset collisions, it's ground forces. Uh, it's now the adjusting for the airbag module location. We used to also throw in there all the new uh, EDRs that, and we, we found that we, we couldn't cover that all in a week, so we decided to uh, keep it to the call it the skills. Uh, what what is what are skills that have to be developed to be used as opposed to just awareness of what the latest data is, um, so that uh, that course has evolved over time, and the the SAE course started off as the called the three day engineer version of the IPTM five-day law enforcement the five-day law enforcement we would make the officers do the math in class because if they didn't they wouldn't do it when they got home and in sae you know i'd, I'd say you know well would you, would you like to do the math in class or would you like to you know just show you one and they say you know well, rick unless you're paying us you know 300 bucks an hour to do math you know we're not doing math for you rick you know it's like we do math for our <laughs> clients you know you show us once we go do the math at home we charge them for it you know so, uh, so my SAE classes, they, when I said like, would you like, to, who would like to do this drill sheet and they say like, that that's okay. Just show us one, you know, so, uh, we would cram it into, into three. So initially it was cram five into three. Well, now that there's a level two IPTM, I've got like 10 days of stuff. And I'm trying to cram that into three days, you know, for SAE. And I, I keep asking SAE for a fourth day. And they say, well, we can't call it a, you know, a, a class if it's four days. It's a seminar. you know. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a, a a class anymore. It's a seminar. Can I have a seminar?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They Make it a seminar. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought I took your class. Uh, I, I looked. I was looking at my notes in preparation for this conversation. I was twenty twenty one, so it was kind of mid COVID. So I had to take the remote version of it. But you did a tremendous job compiling all that information and putting it into a, a format that's digestible and concise. And then I I also just really appreciate the fact that you gave a bunch of materials that you didn't necessarily go over, but now I have on my computer. And whenever I get one of these Tutti-Putti gumdrop cases, which is what I'm gonna call them from now on for the rest of my career, (laughs) uh, I can pull up some information from the PowerPoint presentations and and I have that. So um, you're just, like I said at the beginning, you're a pillar of this community. You really help us interpret all this information. And uh, I appreciate you donating two hours to, to speak with me today and to the rest of the community. Um, much gratitude. Thanks, Rick. Very good. Hey, everyone. One more thing before you get back to business, and that is my weekly bite sized email to the point. Would you like to get an email from me every Friday discussing a single tool, paper, method or update in the community? Past topics have covered Toyota's vehicle control history, including a coverage chart, ADAS, that's Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, Tesla vehicle data reports, free video analysis tools, and handheld scanners. If that sounds enjoyable and useful, head to lightpointdata.com to the point to get the very next one.